Amen. We turn to 1 Timothy 2, and when readers approach this paragraph in verses 8 to 15, they may not realize at first they're entering into controversial and difficult territory. But because you have likely had some familiarity with 1 Timothy before our series began at the end of 2023, you knew this paragraph was coming. You knew I wasn't going to skip it. The terrain doesn't seem as rocky at the beginning of the paragraph. But by the time you finish verse 15, you have a sense that you have just read through something with very high stakes that needs to be very carefully understood and very thoughtfully applied. Today we begin one of the most difficult paragraphs in the entire New Testament. And I don't think I'm overstating it. It is certainly the most difficult paragraph to interpret in Paul's letter to Timothy here. And as I thought about how to approach verses 8 to 15, I've decided to handle the passage in three sermons. So today begins the first of three sermons in verses 8 to 15. We're going to look today at verses 8 to 10, and then in those remaining two sermons cover verses 11 to 15. It is a challenging paragraph, but the opening three verses are the easiest. And it gets more challenging from there. It's sort of like entering a pool and starting on the shallow end, and you're thinking, feels great. Maybe a little cold, but my feet touch, I'm fine. And then you keep walking and walking to the opposite side, and it feels like you're getting deeper and deeper. And by the time we're finished, our feet are still going to be touching after the end of the paragraph. But it does feel like a, a movement into more challenging water. As you will recall from the opening context in 1 Timothy 2, the first two verses are a call for prayer. And I want you to realize Paul has not changed subjects when we get to verse 8. In verses 1 to 2, he wants all people to be praying, believers that is, praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And especially for the salvation of kings and those in high positions, because Paul aims that these prayers produce uh, conditions in which believers can live a peaceful and quiet life dignified and godly before God their Savior and with their neighbor. With that in mind, that kind of praying is good, he says in verse 3, because after all, God desires the nations to be saved. He desires all people to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. And this salvation is grounded, he says in verse 6, in the once-for-all ransom of Jesus Christ who died for our sins on the cross and rose in victory from the grave. In verse 8, he continues talking about prayer. So we should notice that in verses 8 and following, the immediate context in 1 Timothy 2 has to do with what is taking place in the gathering of the church in Ephesus. And that this is attending to their corporate order and behavior together. I think we can also affirm that. Because in chapter 3, he says in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church. So what is foremost on Paul's mind as he writes to Timothy? Well, these aren't instructions just for Timothy, but these are exhortations and reminders. These are teachings and clarifications about Timothy's leadership with regard to the church so that the church will be rightly ordered and know how one ought to behave in the household of God. There are ethical implications to Paul's words then. He aims to steer and guide their behavior. 
Now, as an apostle commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus, and as an apostle whose letters are inspired by the Holy Spirit, we can trust that as Paul's words guide the readers, he's not guiding them into foolishness. He's not guiding them into things that are sinful or bad thinking or things that later on they'll look back and cringe and think, I can't believe we believed and taught and acted according to that. Instead, Paul is writing about how they ought to behave. And he's writing as an apostle of the Lord Jesus by the command of God. So that when Paul says these words to Timothy, it is in effect the word of Christ through the apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. The main context then for these words in terms of how they land and are applied is the public gathering and worship of the people of God. And he wants the church in Ephesus to be praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And then he addresses prayer and begins to speak about men. But he doesn't speak only about men. He then speaks about women. So it turns out the disorder and difficulty in a church is caused by men and women. So in other words, it has this all-encompassing thing that as sinners, as men and women in churches, we have the potentiality to create difficulties among the people of God. Paul, in writing, no doubt, a much longer letter, hypothetically, we could imagine him having a a whole host of things to avoid and things to put into practice. But in the six chapters the Spirit has preserved for us in this first letter to Timothy, we have several verses to men and to women. In order to understand why he's focusing on these things, we have to remember a little bit about the city he's writing to Timothy in. He's writing to Timothy while Timothy is in Ephesus. And Timothy is in a sprawling metropolis of a city. Ephesus contained a quarter of a million people in the first century Roman Empire. And that means it would include countless people of very high social standing, wealth, and rank. As the gospel spreads throughout the Roman world, what you would expect is that the Lord would draw sinners to himself. And that would include people of various social and political standing and powerful positions and influence. High status people would have also included specifically men and women in the Roman Empire. If we can imagine gatherings at the house churches throughout Ephesus and elsewhere, there would be therefore a coming together in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and under the word of God, people from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different social interests and investments, all kinds of different influences and positions, people who might have great influence and people who may have none or, or very little with regard to the proximate relationships in their life. There can be little doubt that when Paul is writing these words to 1 Timothy 2, he has a goal of addressing a mixed situation of various dynamics at play. It seems that those Roman Empire dynamics affected the way the church could be tempted to conduct itself and behave. So that means there's nothing new under the sun. It turns out that cultural and worldly winds blowing one way or another always provide for the church temptations and snares that would influence unwisely the way we would conduct ourselves. When Paul mentions prayer, he doesn't just say pray. He begins to give some nuances. And when he speaks about women in the gathering, he has several descriptions and details and nuances here. Uh, The reason I want to draw attention to that generally is because when Paul gives what seems like some very specific instructions, some very detailed phrases, do it without this and without that, focus more on this but not on that, we should imagine then that he's addressing needs 
things that needed to be addressed in Ephesus that he's aware of. It's not as if Paul started writing in 1 Timothy 2 and and comes to these subjects that out of his own imagination and instinct, he might think somebody somewhere might read this as relevant or applicable. Instead, he's writing what would be pertaining to specific issues going on in Ephesus. And therefore, when we read his instructions to men and women, it seems reasonable to say these instructions are given because those problems existed there. So we're, we're drawing some plausible implications about why in a letter he starts to go on about the things he's going on about. If he's giving some very specific commands beyond just some general exhortations about loving one another, then we can imagine those details, those nuances, suggesting problems he's addressing. All right, first, to the men. He wants to speak about godly men in verse 8 and then godly women in verses 9 to 15. It's been no short of a humorous smirking among interpreters and scholars who've said one verse is given to the men and then seven are given to the women. I don't think that has to mean some terrible imbalance within the uh, actual congregation. People have wondered what they should infer. Maybe not much, but it is to say in verse 8, there is indeed one instruction given here, though addressing leadership and men in the church will, be, will follow 1 Timothy 2 as well. So it's not as if this is the only thing addressed to men. In verse 8, here it is. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So here is the instruction, and he begins with this statement, I desire, and one wrong way to read this passage would be to see this opening verse as something that Paul would like to see happen, but isn't really that important. Because we might desire all kinds of things, and it sounds like preferences. Well, you know what I desire, or what I would like to see. It's the same word here that is the word I want or will for you. So to desire something when Paul's writing it to the church is more than just a Pauline preference. We should see this as the same kind of injunction where Paul gives imperatives or states what he wants to see in the church. Because framing these kinds of commands and instructions is chapter 3, 14 and 15. He's writing these things so they will know how one ought to behave. He's not writing these things so that they will know what Paul thinks they should do. So when he says, I desire or what I want for you men is this, it's more than just Paul's subjective interest at the time. It should be taken as authoritative. He writes as an apostle by the command of God. So here we have then a gender specific instruction. And when we read, I desire that in every place the men should pray, we know from Paul's other letters, he is not trying to say only men should pray. We know from 1 Corinthians 11, for instance, he's writing about women praying in the congregation. This seems to be then not a statement excluding prayers from women, but to focus on what seems to be a weakness among the men in Ephesus. And so he's talking to the men who pray that they would pray lifting hands, holy hands, without anger or quarreling. So another wrong way to read this passage would be to say that when Paul says, I desire that men should pray, that you would take that and not consider anything else Paul has said elsewhere, which would certainly include 1 Corinthians 11, where women are praying. 
He is not trying to say only men should pray, as if they should be the mediators for women. We have one mediator between God and men, the men Christ Jesus. We talked about this last week. And so therefore, men and women pray in the church. This is a gender-specific directive, and it should not be unnecessarily implied to exclude the prayers of our sisters. Instead, he says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. In every place means more than just one house church in Ephesus. The locations where the church would gather in Ephesus would no doubt include various homes. But when Paul uses the language in every place, it appears a few times in his letters to have a very far-reaching implication. He writes about this language in First and Second Corinthians and in First Thessalonians to have in view more than one specific context. But in other words, how in this context people should conduct themselves like they should everywhere else they gather. I desire that in every place the men should pray and that when they pray, they should do so lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The reason we want to recognize that this could be a problem in Ephesus, but it's not as if these instructions are only relevant for Ephesus, is because no one would imagine that there's no challenge of anger or quarreling in a congregation outside of Ephesus. It would be wrong to think, in other words, well, you know what Ephesus' problem is? They've got men who like to argue, and they've got men who get all worked up about stuff. So just avoid Ephesus and all these other gatherings elsewhere. You'll be just fine. Now, it turns out that these local instructions are part of an issue that can exist in a variety of places and contexts. And therefore, these words are instructions remaining relevant. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Immediately, we notice there's a posture of prayer that's invoked, right? Lifting holy hands. We notice that in the Old Testament, people lifted hands to worship such as a posture noted in the Psalms or in the book of Ezra, where arms are raised and palms are upward and extended arms are followed by prayer. Uh, We know that one of the standard postures of Jewish prayer involves someone standing and with palms upward. But we also know that that is not the only posture described. In the Old Testament, people have sat and prayed. They have laid prostrate and and prayed. They have had uh, their, their bodies kneeling and praying. Various positions are acknowledged in the scriptures. A wrong way to take this is that whenever I'm to pray, if God is to hear my prayer, I have to make sure my hands move from here to this position. We don't want to overread what would be a natural callback to the Old Testament of a, of a position of reverence and honor to God. Lifting holy hands, for instance, is something the priest would do. The high priest like Aaron in Leviticus 9 would lift his hands to pray and to bless the people. It was a common posture of prayer. It does not exclude other postures of prayer. So lifting holy hands, the reference to hand would be to represent what one does in one's life that hands can symbolize. And that is the application of one's thoughts and deeds with work and vocation. No doubt representing to some degree all of one's life. To lift one's hands before the Lord or, or to picture to honor the Lord by having one's hands clean before God moves from the literal to the figurative or the metaphorical. It represents one's life. To lift one's hands before God is meant to be an overflow of an inward disposition. 
an inward attitude, an inward posture of heart and mind, of love toward and honor toward the Most High God, lifting holy hands. And the reason I think we can say that we need to move beyond what is just a, a literal motion here is because the last part of the verse moves to a heart disposition, doesn't it? It talks about the attitude with the language in a negative way, without anger, without quarreling. As these hands symbolize one's life being offered to God as they intercede for others in a time of public prayer, these hands ought to be offered from a life not being lived in hypocrisy. Without anger, without quarreling, is a way of saying that my heart toward God and neighbor, and especially neighbor here, seems to be in view. Because anger and quarreling are over and over again horizontal ethics identified by Paul to, to shape the treatment of church behavior in the household of God. That anger not have a place, a foothold in someone's heart and in the lives of others in the church. And that that would bring disorder and disunity and cause uh, greater frustration. And it would really um, damage relationships for anger and quarreling to bear all of its nasty fruits. Here then is a posture of prayer meant to symbolize a life. Men, Paul is saying to you. To be the kind of men whose hearts seek after God. Whose hearts seek after God. Paul does not believe you should settle for gathering together and going through an external religious motion while your heart is wrong toward God and others. Paul is aiming here at the heart of men. Men... He's speaking here about the spiritual practice of prayer among the people of God. You should be a person pursuing the disciplines of devotion, not just in the secret place, but within your church to be a man of prayer. Paul is not excluding, of course, private prayer like Jesus would mention in Matthew 6, where he says, go to the secret place and pray to your father who sees what is in secret. But it is the case that here in this context, the focus isn't upon secret prayer, but upon the gathering of the church and the order and behavior of the saints that correspond to it. Lifting holy hands is a way of saying my hands are holy, not because they are necessarily outwardly clean. No one would imagine that when uh, Paul writes these words, he's expecting that here's what Paul uh, wants of you. Uh, make sure that your hands are thoroughly washed before you say a prayer. Instead, lifting holy hands, that adjective holy, is to represent a life that is lived set apart to God. So men, Paul's expectation for you is that you be godly men. That if you profess the Lord Jesus Christ, that you be a man who seeks after God and calls upon God and edifies the saints of God and that you do so without anger or quarreling. Oh, does Paul know men or what? Most abusers are men. Most violent crime is committed by men. Most inmates in prison are men. Most road rage incidents involve men. Paul knows there's nothing new under the sun. And that when he says that you men ought to lift holy hands to God and without anger and quarreling, he knows that the worldly and fleshly tendencies might lead toward and tend toward things that disrupt and harm with our words and actions toward our neighbor. Men, 
God does not want you to be in continual conflict with others on non-primary issues. And that even when you have an issue central to the gospel that you are very strongly seeking to defend and advocate, that you do so without your flesh running rampant over your words and conduct. Without anger, without quarreling. It could be the case, and I think likely is the case, that in 1 Timothy 1, when he mentions the false teachers who are involved in all sorts of vain discussions, and they've created a lot of confusion and difficulty, that one of the bad examples these false teachers have set is that these false teachers are characterized by quarreling. They love to argue. They want to argue, and it could be that they just love hearing themselves talk, but it could be that they really like the idea of dominating another. The idea of suppressing a fellow image bearer and to in some way achieve a kind of victory at the cost of a relationship. They want to use their words in a monopolizing way. They don't mind being angry. and They don't mind quarreling. In fact, they kind of like it. We've got to beware of those fleshly tendencies within us, especially in a culture like ours where the news media wants you to be angry all the time about everything. So listen to me, men. When we think of the worldly and fleshly tendencies that we might be tempted and ensnared easily by, consider that even the snares around us through what we take in into our ears and eyes will not necessarily help us toward holiness, but lay more and more abundant traps of things that you ought to be angry about all the time. Is there such a thing as righteous indignation? Of course Is there such a thing as being animated with zeal and passion toward issues of justice and righteousness? Absolutely. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a lack of self-control. He's talking about damaged relationships where you're not seeking peace and resolution. When he says to pray without anger or quarreling, it might remind us of Jesus' teachings in Matthew chapter 5 when he says when you come to the altar and if you have something against your brother, won't just leave the gift there, go to your brother. Make sure that gets resolved. Make sure you're at peace and then come back. Don't be trying to offer hands to God that aren't representing a set-apart life where you're loving the people of God around you. You may think of the book of Isaiah. Where people lifted their hands to God through various prayers and motions of worship. And here's what God says in Isaiah 1 verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. That is not the response we want when we pray. When you spread out your hands, when you lift hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers... I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. You know what the urgent application of this is, men? That if we are engaged in any way, publicly and privately, dealing with willful disobedience against God, that we come clean and turn from evil and repent before God and man, and that we seek holiness for the sake of our gatherings and our assemblies, our prayers, order, and blessedness in the church, men, lift holy hands without anger, and without quarreling. He's wanting your life to be marked by holiness. Turn from evil, and with your whole heart, pursue Christ, so that the hands you lift in prayer are holy. It's not because you're sinless. It's because you are demonstrating a response to the gospel you profess to believe. 
that you believe that you are called to be a man of God, not a man of the world, a man of holiness, not a man of worldliness, a man of righteousness and love and courage and conviction, not a man who doesn't care about truth and is on the edge of compromise on every front, but a man who loves God, who loves the truth, who loves his neighbor and who loves his church. Be a godly man. That's what God is calling you to through the words of the Apostle Paul here. And then he writes to the women in verses 9 and 10. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. You know, not everybody across the centuries has appreciated words from the Apostle Paul about women and to women. Let me give you an example. George Bernard Shaw was a playwright who lived in the latter part of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. He said the Apostle Paul was, quote, an eternal enemy of women. Okay, so that's one guy's take. An eternal enemy of women. And so if you have an eternal enemy of women that you're convinced the Apostle Paul is, well, that's going to affect the way you receive his words. But if you can recall that the Apostle Paul is a commanded apostle by the Lord Jesus... And all of his letters, like all the letters and all the books of the New and Old Testaments, are inspired of the Holy Spirit and are not the mere words of man. Then what we have is something different than what Bernard Shaw says. Shaw is wrong. Paul is not an enemy of women eternally. Instead, he is a vessel and an apostle of the Lord Jesus for the sake of the good of men and women in the churches of Christ. And here's what he says in verses 9 and 10. Likewise, also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Okay, one wrong way to understand this. We've looked at a couple nuances and qualifications for verse 8. What would be one example in verse 9? Well, if somebody were to say, well, couldn't a man also struggle with vanity, worry far too much, and be immodest and lack self-control and wear what is not respectable apparel? Well, of course, of course he could. But the issue in Ephesus going on, is something he's now going to address with these words. He's not excluding that among men that there may be a struggle with this as well. Just as he wouldn't say that among women there wouldn't be a struggle with any anger or quarreling ever. We know that his words are addressing what is going on in Ephesus that must be corrected. That must be corrected for the sake of their own order and edifying gathering. So he says, in a sense in verses 9 and 10, we could could summarize it like verse 8. Instead of be godly men, we would say in verses 9 and 10, be godly women. Be a woman of God, a woman of holiness, a woman loving righteousness and goodness, and who knows what her priority should be. In verses 9 and 10, when he says likewise, I take that to mean he's bringing down the verb from verse 8 that started like this, I desire. And when he says, I desire that men should pray lifting holy hands, and then likewise, I think he's saying in verse 9, I desire also that women should adorn themselves. So so it's a way of, of looking back to, here's Paul's instruction to them, what he wants for the men in verse 8, and then likewise, what he wants for the women in verses 9 and 10. That these women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, this language in verse 9, you got to look at the whole verse, and here's what I think you could imply. The end of verse 9, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, seems to be something that compromises earlier terms. Modesty, self-control. 
And you might say, how in the world would braided hair or pearls or a, 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 a nice outfit, a costly attire, how would that compromise self-control and modesty? And that is the, that's the right question to ask. How does all of this verse fit together? Because respectable apparel or modesty or self-control may involve these various things. You might have thought before you come to church today, ladies, you probably did. How do I want my hair to look? Will I add on any jewelry? What will I wear today? You probably didn't close your eyes and go and pick random things and then show up. There is instead, however, a context in the Roman Empire where these words fit an issue that has risen. Much archaeological and historical work has been done discussing the first century days of Paul's um, readers. And in the days of his contemporaries, I want to quote from one historian who explains it this way. Some women of means and position flouted values governing adornment and dress and sexual propriety. The emergence of this movement was so disturbing to the status quo that Caesar Augustus actually issued legislation against it. And associated with the new paradigm was behavior that gave it the look of an ancient sexual revolution of sorts. With wealthy women displaying themselves in permissive clothing and hairstyles and seeking other sexual freedoms that were enjoyed by others in the culture. This historian goes on to say, given the existence of the quote, new woman in Roman society, it wouldn't be surprising if Christian women were tempted to be drawn into such a movement. And perhaps, he says, the most notable symbol of the movement was the outward adornment and apparel. I think that his description here of the context is likely determining why Paul's saying what he is here in 1 Timothy 2. That this respectable apparel or modesty or self-control was not trendy in the Roman Empire. That's not what all the pop singers and Hollywood actresses were looking like. That's not what you would necessarily see among all the magazines and on the shelves. You would see certain behavior that looked and emphasized sensuality and permissiveness. And Paul says, you ought not, you Christian women, look at the world's way of displaying their femininity and say, I want to imitate that. That that is not first and foremost where you take your cue. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. I think that what Paul is showing is your adornment is connected to an attitude. Let, let's see verse 9 here. Adorn themselves. That is speaking about an outward adornment. He speaks about respectable apparel. But then he mentions modesty and self-control, which is something that begins inwardly. So what's a, what's a common denominator we're noticing so far among verses 8 and 9? He's caring about the attitude that men bring to worship. And he's caring about the attitude that the women are bringing to worship. He cares first and foremost about the state of your heart. And that shouldn't surprise any one of us. We would think, well, of course then. But sometimes what we need to recognize and put together as Paul's helping us do here in verses 8 and 9 is certain behavior with our words or actions or even outward adornments could suggest something wrong within that needs to be brought in conformity to the word of God. He says here that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Let's uh, hypothetically imagine this situation. If in the Roman Empire you have gatherings of the local church 
And women are coming in in order to display ostentatiously something that many others are doing in the culture around them. It will draw attention to them, and that may be their very goal. I think there's a danger here then in verses 9 and 10 that he's wanting to point out for the women to not come to the gathering with a goal to draw the attention upon yourself. Because if someone is coming into a gathering dressed with permissive and sensual or sexually suggestive clothing, that that is an effect that can happen in a group. And that he says, well, in the gathering of the church, modesty and self-control. That's an attitude that then should be reflected in one's dress. Our culture does not help ladies think about modesty and self-control in any positive way. That is not what they want. They want to push every boundary possible for the sake of freedom and self-expression. And Paul says, you know what's better than self-expression? Self-control. Self-control. Dying to yourself, taking up your cross, following Christ, and no matter what the famous people and trending outfits and fashions are, immodesty does not reflect a heart attitude honoring to God. Modesty and self-control shape one's choice of dress, he says. In other words, he doesn't, he's saying, don't come to flaunt. Because if you look at the latter part of the verse, braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly attire, these were particular things chosen in the Roman Empire for the sake of display and flaunting. So if someone took the trouble to get all of their hair done in a particular way, and then they gathered, and they were the only person standing out that way, the goal was to stand out. The goal was to look a certain way, to be noticed, and to have that attention upon them. And he's saying, listen, listen, come, come rather than with a, a desire for focus upon yourself, come with a desire for something else. I mean, I think he gets that, to that in verse 10. But he knows here that while there may be men who are concerned, overly so, about their appearance and what they have here or there and that what they're bringing, the attitude he focuses on with men in verse 8 are particular issues with the Ephesian context. And I think the same thing with the new woman movement going on in the Roman Empire as that historian described it. With the existence of that movement, Paul wants believers to be grounded in self-control, not easily blown away by cultural fashion. Now, I don't think that means the goal of the woman should be, what's the most unfashionable thing I could wear? What is the thing that could be the least this or least that? I think instead the questions are, does this communicate modesty? Does this suggest self-control? Or am I adorning myself with what I hope will bring attention to me? He says, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly attire. Is that because braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly attire are sinful? No. What he's saying is, in the Roman context, that was an issue. Now, I think culturally speaking, we can recognize this principle can transfer to the modern day without us having to use language about the braid of someone's hair or someone wearing jewelry. Instead, we have the perennial question that remains, am I thinking about my appearance more than my heart? Am I spending more time in front of the mirror than in the mirror of God's word? In other words, am I thinking more about the focus that will be upon me rather than ready to go to the people of God with a heart of worship and camaraderie and love? Because here's what he follows up with in verse 10. But with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. He's talking now with a movement from the literal to the figurative. 
Because he's moving earlier with men, talking about their hands, talking about anger and quarreling, the attitude of the heart. And he's moving here about adornment, outward, respectful apparel, talking now about adorning with what is proper for women, good works. There is a better and greater adornment, ladies. And the greater and better adornment is good works in keeping with your profession of godliness. There it is. So in verses 9 and 10, Paul doesn't want to just settle for things that are externals. He wants to say, make sure that what you're doing outwardly, what you're displaying outwardly, what you're spending time attending to outwardly, that you're not short-circuiting the heart behind that. Don't be so self-deceived or unaware that you're not giving mindful attention to the state of your heart and attitude when you come to the people of God. One of the other reasons that in the Roman Empire, uh, that this could be uh, a problem in the gatherings of the church, is it would pose distraction and disruption. Similar that we can imagine an attitude of quarreling and anger would. Paul wants order and peace among the people of God. And the world does not set the criteria and standard with how to achieve peace among one another. I know you believe this, but we're just thinking through this together in verses 8 to 10 so that we can think through the logic of what's behind these verses. Why do they fit together the way they do and, and, and how, do they, how do they hit us today? In verse 10, what is proper for women who profess godliness? In other words, this is addressing women who profess Jesus as Savior. They, they would say, Christ is my ransom. He's given himself for me. He took my sins upon the cross. So they've made a profession. They've professed godliness that they want to follow this Christ. Because it's more than just the gospel there. Professing godliness means I want to follow Christ. I want to, I want to be a disciple. It means more than just I'm saying I believe the gospel. I want to follow Christ. My life conformed to the gospel I profess. So professing godliness is another way of saying, if I want to worship God and fear God, that needs to have manifestation in the way I conduct myself. So I don't want to be someone who professes to know God and adorn myself in an ungodly way. Rather, I want to adorn myself with what is proper for women who profess godliness, good works. And good works are not a focus on self. Good works are a focus upon others. And he has the point in verses 8 through 10 with the men and the women. Rather than the men being preoccupied about what they're uh, angry about, what they're wanting to quarrel about, what's got them all worked up, they want to give attention with holy hands to the needs of the saints and the peace of the church. And the same thing, though in a different context here in details, with regard to the women in verses 9 through 10. That what's proper for those who profess godliness is good works. I mean, don't we know this from the Proverbs? Proverbs 31, 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing. Think about that. Strength and dignity are her clothing. In Proverbs 31, 30. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. When Paul's emphasizing the heart and attitude of a woman, he's not doing something new. He's doing something old. And he's saying the, the ancient truth about living as a godly woman before God is it's your clothing, your adornment. is first and foremost strength and dignity and fear of the Lord. And that with that attitude and devotion to God, it will affect other outward things. 
Paul is not just the only one concerned about this kind of thing, and in Ephesus in particular. Notice how widespread such a teaching could be when Peter writes similar words in 1 Peter to a group of believers scattered in all sorts of different places. He says in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Let your adorning be the inner person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. So ladies, here's what I think Paul is saying. Focus more on the gems of self-control and the virtue of modesty. Focus more on the mirror of God's word. Love the adornment of strength and dignity in the fear of the Lord. Your heart being drawn to that is the best thing for you as a godly woman. And he defines adornment that is most fitting for her as good deeds to love and to care for others. You know, a good deed, he's not saying good thoughts. You might have good intentions all over the place and good thoughts about things to do here or there. Good deeds means what you want to do doesn't just remain in your mind. You, you do it. You're wanting to, to perform and to demonstrate outwardly through works of love and compassion your care for others. Well, one way to think about this is not just good thoughts, but deliberate expressions of care and love and service and kindness toward your brothers and sisters in Christ is a way that your adornment is so beautifully displayed. Isn't this about priority when it comes down to it for the men and the women in the church? What is it, what is it that should matter to them? Well, what should matter to them is ultimately their heart before God and others and not the things externally around them that can easily preoccupy them to make them angry or to create vanity, to stir up quarreling or to stimulate self-focus. What all of this means is away from self and more to Christ. Away from self and looking to others. Verses 8 to 10 are about those things. Now you might say to yourself this morning, but I'm not really committed to be a godly man. And I'm not really committed to be a godly woman. Well then my friend, you may not be saved. That may be what that means. Because for someone to say, I know Christ, I have been born again by the Spirit of God, I'm united to the ransom who gave himself for sinners, but I don't want to be a godly man or I don't want to be a godly woman. Well dear friend, on what basis are you calling yourself a believer? Have you thought this through? Because someone who wants to know Christ is someone who wants to follow Christ. Someone who's been saved by the Spirit of God and walking upon a path of life and righteousness. These are those who will then have a genuine desire to live a godly life before God. They, well, they want to be a godly man. They want to be a godly woman. Because in the end, they've been saved by God's mercy. Jesus has taken their sins on the cross. So God help us to turn from anger and quarreling. God help us to turn from showy displays and ostentatiousness. God help us to turn from any self-focus and me-centeredness that lurks within us. God help us to live holy lives and to lift holy hands in prayer. God help us to profess godliness and to keep in step with the profession we've made. God help us not to take cues about external things from the world which is opposed to God. Let's walk instead a path of humility and love and goodness. Let's love the path of life and the Christ who saved us. And by the power of God's grace, let's live as godly men and women for His glory. Let's pray.